Galatians 5. Um, we'll be there for a little bit. We'll end up in John 15 for a little while too. As we continue our spiritual warfare series, the weapons of our warfare. As we have considered the nature of our warfare, we've identified three primary enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, last week we talked about faith and learned that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Uh, so then when we want to fight the world and as we frame our minds upon the idea of fighting the world, the source of victory in exercising um, uh, or uh, in, in fighting the world is by exercising our faith in the truths of God's word. The divinely designed shield of faith as a part of the whole armor of God secures for me as I exercise it honestly and obediently. Um, it secures for me all the tools necessary to find consistent victory over the lies, the deceits, and the attacks of the world as we have defined it. And as I've said so many times, let me remind you of the world as we have defined it. When we talk about the world, we are not talking about the people that are in the world or even by de facto the, uh, the institutions uh, that are in the world, but rather uh, it is the ideas, right? It is the direction, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the ideas and the philosophies that drive these things and exalt themselves against the truths of God. That is the world that is our enemy. And last week we added this weapon of faith to our arsenal, tailored, designed by God to combat the enemy that we call the world so that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. This week we consider the battle against the second enemy that we've labeled, and that enemy is the enemy of the flesh. And this is going to be a two-parter. This week I'm going to be a little bit more um, foundational. Uh, some of it may almost even sound like I'm beating a dead horse a little bit as I try to bring about an understanding uh, of what the battle against the flesh is not, what submission is not, what walking in the Spirit is not, and the reality that, that, these, that, that this victory is possible. And then next week, we'll actually lay down the nitty-gritty of how it is that we, we find this victory. So we've already defined the enemy. We've already defined the flesh. We did that some time ago. What is the flesh? You should know and be comfortable by now about what the flesh is, referencing the carnal man or our sin nature, not just anything that's in the body, not just anything that is physical, not just anything that is temporal. It is not that my body is itself sinful. I have a body of sin and that I have a carnal nature to me uh, that is connected to the impulses of my, my body and the desires that are around me in this world. We are born into this body. We are born with an old nature as well, born as uh, in, in this carnal man, which is inherently dominated in our hearts and lives until such, uh, by, by this carnal man, by this sin nature, until such a time as I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. At the moment that I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I'm regenerated by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And the Bible says that I am given a new nature. When Paul calls, uh, Paul calls this in Ephesians 4, any number of things, the new man. And he says that this new man is created in righteousness and true holiness. And what we will find today is that this new man, this new nature, is the key to overcoming this enemy that we call the flesh. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. 
The key to overcoming the flesh, we'll find, is to walk in the Spirit. To live in the new man, to live in the new nature. But as we begin today, before we get into that and the nature of that exhortation, I want to start by combating what I would consider to be the two most common false strategies to contend against the flesh. The ways that so many Christians use to fight this battle against the flesh that end up at worst in absolute failure and frustration and at best a measure of perceived victory without any spiritual favor, blessing, or power. And I begin with these to help us frame our minds upon what I'm not saying this morning and particularly into next week. I don't want you to interpret the passages of Scripture today through the lens of these, these strategies that I'm going to talk about here, through the lens of these things which are not ways to combat the flesh. You can interpret all of these verses through the lens of, of these types of ideas, but there's no power in them. Instead, we interpret these through the lens of the spirit power in our lives. These these strategies, these common false strategies to contend against the flesh are inherently insufficient to deal with the enemy in its truest form. And the first common incorrect way that we as Christians and the world around us combat the flesh is self-discipline. Now, self-discipline is not a bad thing. We all need self-discipline. And the exercise of it is a wonderful asset for those who have trained themselves into it. We talked about this a little bit in our Sunday school time, that uh, those who are second and third generation Christians in particular have grown up probably with a fairly large measure of self-discipline. You've grown up in families that have a measure of self-discipline. And that self-discipline has, in fact, given you the means by which to uh, avoid many of the ensnarements and entrapments of the world that is around us. We all need self-discipline, but self-discipline is still, I mean, it's in the very name, right? It's an outworking of me. Self-discipline is self. And as we've made abundantly clear throughout our spiritual warfare series, you do not have the power in yourself to overcome spiritual enemies. You don't. You can't do it. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The power of our warfare is not us but God in us. There are men and women in this room who are overcome by some element of your flesh. And your primary avenue of defense has been self-discipline. And for some of you, that has not worked at all. And you're really frustrated. You're frustrated because you've tried everything. You're frustrated because you, 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 you've gone into that self-discipline mode and, and you've worked hard and you found a measure of victory for a time only to fall back into the same problems as before. For others of you, it's worked insofar as you are able to control the environment around you enough to avoid a sin, but you haven't actually found any victory in battle. You've only successfully controlled the conditions of your life to avoid the battle altogether, so that the only time you're experiencing anything like victory is when you are successful in avoiding triggers and temptations altogether. And if you do find yourself in a situation which is outside of your little bubble of control, which is outside of the environment that you have placed yourself in whereby you are not tempted, then the most common outcome is failure, if not the inevitable outcome. And Christian, that idea 
The idea that you have controlled your environment so much so that you are not facing the temptations, but that the moment you face a temptation, you end up in failure, that is not victory. That is not victory. That is simply avoiding the battle. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It is not bad by any means to avoid temptation, to avoid snares. As a matter of fact, the Bible calls us to do so. We should, of course, avoid every battle and flee every temptation we can possibly flee. Because every time the battle arises, there's always a possibility of failure because, well, I'm so very human, right? But that is not victory. Victory over the flesh is not when you have controlled yourself and your environment enough to avoid every temptation to sin while still living in a constant desire and craving for the things which you cannot have. Victory over the flesh is when Christ has actually taken the place which was once reserved for that sin so that as you live in Christ, you are not craving that sin any longer. You do not have a compulsion unto that thing which overcomes you because you have found in Christ sufficient to meet your need in that area of life. Self-discipline consists of fences that I put into my life specifically to compensate for my weaknesses in times when I am not, for any number of human reasons, walking in the power of God as I ought. To avoid battles that I don't need to fight or to protect me from battles in times of weakness, in times where I'm not where I ought to be in my life, in times where I'm not walking in the Spirit as I ought, in times where I'm not as close to Christ as I ought to be. But those fences, self-discipline, is not by any means a sufficient substitute for the power of God to give me victory in battle. So that the, the standard characteristic of my life should be victory by walking in the Spirit, victory through Christ, and then in times of weakness, in times of, of, of discouragement, in times of confusion, in times of, of, of struggle because I have stepped outside of the umbrella of God's protection for one reason or another, then I have the fences in my life to keep me from making a major mistake, to keep me from, to, to, to be walls that I run into to hinder me in, in, through self-discipline and through my environment from going places that I normally would not choose to go if I were, in, if I were walking with Christ. We all need self-discipline, and it is a vital part of living out our lives in Christ, but it is not the power, Christian. And if you have only ever tapped into the self-discipline or environmental controls to give you victory, you have tapped into no power. You have only tapped into strategies. You have not tapped into any power. You have only tapped into carnal fences. The same thing that anybody else around the world can put up. Anybody, any religion, any system can put up in their lives self-disciplined fences and can control their environment in order to keep them from doing things they don't want to do. This is not unique to biblical Christianity. This is not unique to a relationship with Jesus Christ. But there is no power there. Power is found through the Spirit of God. And if you get this confused, as so many Christians do, and I'm not here this morning standing over you telling you that, 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 that if you've been confused by this, that, that you're bad and you're wrong and you're, 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 you're mixed up and all of these things. I'm not, I'm not standing over you trying to make you feel guilty by God's grace. I never do that if I can at all help it. But you need to know that that's 
not enough. You need to know that there's power out there that you're not tapping into if all you've ever tapped into is self-discipline and environmental control. If you seek to self-discipline as the power to find in your life victory over the flesh rather than a set of strategies to help compensate for your human weaknesses, frailties, and propensities to step outside of the power of Christ in your life, then you are combating the flesh incorrectly. And you are probably living out the realities of that incorrect battle in your life through the measure of failure that you're experiencing. You're attempting to fight in your own power, self-discipline, rather than the power of Christ. And you aren't going to experience true victory as the scriptures define it, actual freedom from the power of the flesh in your life, or any measure of stability, if you are simply exercising self-discipline and environmental control. Instead, you will live on a roller coaster of good days and bad days, frustration, discouragement, and doubt as you're up and you're down and you're up and you're down and you're up and you're down. Good days, bad days, good days, bad days. And you will find in it no consistency and no stability. And by virtue of no consistency and no stability, you will find yourself double-minded, driven with the wind and tossed, and thus ineffective to be able to move on, to be able to grow in the Lord. This is not the hallmarks of any sort of victory of which the Bible speaks. The second incorrect way to combat the flesh, hypocrisy. This is, a, I guess, kind of a misleading incorrect way because you're not actually combating the flesh here. You're just presenting yourself as combating the flesh. Hypocrisy isn't really a way to fight the flesh at all. It's just a way to make others think you have victory when you don't. It's a way for you to put up a false front of godliness or of contentment or of peace, which is by no means actually yours. It's still worth mentioning because it's a reality in the lives of many Christians and many churches. People commonly define hypocrisy as saying one thing but doing another. And, and that's true, but I think it's overly simplistic. Let me explain. Every week I get up here and I tell you what the Bible has to say about various topics. And if I were to wait until I had all of the topics that I'm telling you about figured out before I told you about them, we would not have much preaching on Sundays. Right now, I'm currently in the process of marriage counseling. And as I'm going through this process of marriage counseling, the other day I came back, and I've, I've mentioned this in a couple of different forums already, I came back from one of these sessions and I remarked to my wife, uh, something which I have noticed every time I've done marriage counseling, and that is that I always walk away from these sessions remembering just how far short I fall of being a good husband, how much work I still have to do as a husband and a father on the various issues that we're talking about. We talk about love, we talk about submission, we talk about communication, we talk about truth, we talk about all of these things, and I walk away saying, oh yeah, th those are some really good points I made, um, I could really use some shoring up in some of those areas of my own life. And these things become, they invigorate my own determinations as a husband. If I waited until I was the right kind of husband before I taught anyone else how to be the right kind of husband, uh, we'd be waiting a very, very long time. Not that, not that I'm not striving and working and I've not figured some things out, but I've, I, there's a lot I haven't figured out yet. But I can still tell you what's true. 
even if I have not fully appropriated it into my life. That, that is not necessarily hypocrisy. That's humanity. Hypocrisy is when I cease to stand in my integrity. Hypocrisy is if I sat in front of any given couple, told them all of these things that the Bible says and the Bible explains about how to, how to have a, a proper marriage, and then try to give the impression that that is my marriage, that that is me as a husband. And that would be hypocrisy. For me to stand up and say, I haven't figured all of this out yet, but this is true, is not hypocrisy. I have retained my integrity, if that's where I am. Hypocrisy is when I yield my integrity and I try to present myself as something that I am not. Hypocrisy is to come to church on Sunday all cleaned up and sanitized, pretending that my life is a perfect picture of Christian obedience and blessing, while in fact I'm under heavy chastening and being ravaged by sin. But I will not admit it. I will not seek help because I want everyone to think that I am something I am not. There is no integrity there. Therefore, there is hypocrisy there. And I said this is somewhat misleading because this is not a way to combat the flesh, actually, right? This is simply living a lie. It is a way to make people think I am not combating the flesh, that I've got it figured out even when I don't. It is a reality in many of our lives, though. And as we talk today about having true victory over the flesh, I am not talking about successfully disciplining your life or, or controlling your circumstances in order to avoid ever-present longings in your heart to sin. I'm talking about your heart changing so that you don't want to sin anymore. I'm not talking about pretending I have victory for the sake of appearances while simultaneously being completely dominated by my flesh. I am talking about having victory over my flesh. And while there are any number of places that we could go to speak to this idea, the manual for biblical victory over the flesh really begins in Galatians 5. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, the Bible says this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now I begin in verses 1 through 4 to help frame our mindset around the biblical concept of liberty. Excuse me. Biblical liberty is not the idea that I have civil rights or I can do what I want. We've talked, we talked a little bit about biblical liberty last 4th of July and the nature of liberty being uh, not whether or not I have authority over us. There's always going to be authorities over us, but my relationship to said authorities. Biblical liberty is defined, however, as a, with a measure of freedom. Freedom first from the bondage of my own sin and second from the weight and the demands and the guilt of carnal ordinances, which Paul calls here the whole law. This would correspond to the concept that I just mentioned as it relates to self-discipline. The law existed as a template of do's and don'ts. And if I were able to keep those, that template of do's and those don'ts, I would find in those do's and those don't, don'ts victory over the flesh. That if I did all of those things and did not do all of those things that the whole law asked me to do and not to do, by default, I would be in a place where I had had victory over the flesh because the flesh is that which compels me to do those things which are not 
right by God, right, not right in the law. But self-discipline under the law is a system of debt which I simply cannot pay. I cannot pay that debt. And while the law as we know it is not by any means a bad thing, the law as created by God was insufficient for victory in the lives of humans, not because the law was a problem, but because of the flesh itself. The flesh, the old man, the carnal man, the sin nature is so ever present and is so powerful that the law could not afford me life. So that the thing that God had ordained unto life, Paul says, God says, if you keep all of these commandments, you will live in them. You will live if you keep them all actually became death to me and becomes death to every man because we can't keep them, right? It is impossible for us because of our sin nature to keep them the way God demands. Thus, the law is insufficient for victory, either in my life unto salvation or in my life unto personal sanctification. And this is what Paul makes clear as he continues. He speaks to the church in this context of circumcision, which was a big part of the false gospel going around in Jewish circles of the day, that a man must, either to be in Christ or to be right with Christ, be circumcised according to the Old Testament law, saying to them that such a persuasion that they must be circumcised was actually a hindrance to them walking in the Spirit, not an asset to it. And then he goes on in verse 13 through 18 to say this, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, here it is, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye are, be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. So we are in the same book, right? The same context as before. Paul referencing the purpose of our liberty, that liberty that we have in Christ, the freedom from the weight and the guilt of the ordinances does not exist to allow us to sin or to simply free our consciences from the, the, the weight of, of sinning to allow us to sin without guilt, but rather to free us unto righteousness, to deliver us from the weight of simply having to self-discipline my life into alignment with a set of rules and instead to empower me to have victory over the flesh. What you will find, Christian, is that if you are trying to live out a life of self-discipline, whereby you are seeking unto self-discipline for the power in order to submit yourself to a system of do's and of don'ts as a means by which to interpret your rightness either with God or with the church or whoever, your rightness in your own mind, if you are simply aligning yourself with a moral standard and seeking unto self-discipline to conform to that moral standard, it is going to take all of you, all of you to make that happen. It is going to make you more selfish. It is going to turn you more inward. And what Paul is saying here is that the liberty that we have in Christ frees us so that we may then turn outward so that our liberty might be used, so that we might by love serve one another, so that we don't have to spend our entire lives litigating ourselves or others as it relates to the do's and the don'ts, and we are instead free to live 
for one another. And as we do so, we follow Christ. And as we follow Christ, he works in us the power of the Spirit of God. And as he works in us the power of the Spirit of God, we fulfill the whole law. Because as we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're going to talk a lot more about that, particularly next week as we get to the how. This week is more of the what. So I'm freed from myself. I'm able to turn my attention toward others, using my liberty to serve one another by love, and as an added bonus, I fulfill the whole law, very much so killing two birds with one stone. So then Paul exhorts this. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The flesh is the thing in our lives which so often stands between us and Christ. The flesh fights the Spirit, and the Spirit fights the flesh. They are contending one against another. And if you're a believer in this room, there are two natures inside of you. The one you were born with, that's the flesh, the old man, the sin nature, whatever you want to call it. Carnality. And then the one you were given when you were born again. The spirit of the living God. The new nature. The new man. New creation. Whatever you want to call it. The moment you were given that new nature, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, you were made this new creature. Old things were passed away. Behold, all things are made new. The chains of the power of, the fle of your flesh, of your old man, of your sin nature were broken over you, over your body, and you were given a perfect, righteous, and holy nature which cannot sin called the new man. But just because you have this perfect, holy, new nature called the new man that cannot sin does not mean that the old nature goes away. The flesh doesn't go away. It no longer has the power to command your obedience, but it still has whatever power you choose to give it. But Galatians 5.16 tells us that if we walk in the Spirit, we are not beholden to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That there is a path forward for which, by which you can have victory and that that victory is found in what we call walking in the Spirit. John 15 calls it abiding in Christ. And when I am in this state of spiritual empowerment on the authority of the Word of God, what I find is that my life pro produces the virtues of righteousness through the Spirit of God. My heart is renewed in a desire to do right before God, and I experience victory. So that Paul goes on to say, Verses 19 through 25. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I... Uh, as I have also told you in time past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We've explained that before. I'm not going to explain it today. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Those things are the things we want, right? That's what the law wants of us. That, that, that is what the law, all the do's and the don'ts of the law are seeking to produce, right? Those nine attributes. Those nine attributes are produced in me as I walk in the Spirit. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 
Notice how Paul presents this contrast. The flesh is one power, and when I submit to that power, what the flesh produces in me is the thoughts and the desires and the actions that would be consistent with the flesh that we would often call sin. The spirit is another power, and when I submit myself to that power, what the spirit produces in me is righteous desires, righteousness, righteous thoughts, righteous actions, that which we would often call righteousness. And what we find then is that the battle is not inherently over what is being produced. The battle is over what power you are submitting to. What is being produced is merely the natural outworking of the power you're submitting to. So this is why the strategy here, the weapon of our spiritual warfare that I give is the weapon of submission, not the weapon of self-discipline, not the, welp welcome, the, the weapon of you getting rid of all of the things that your flesh is producing. You can spend the rest of your life, as we've talked about it before, playing whack-a-mole with all of the things that your flesh is producing. You can spend the rest of your life picking the yellow heads off of the dandelions that your flesh is producing. But if you don't pull up those roots, if you don't submit to the power of the Spirit, to a different empowerment within you, the same thing is going to keep getting produced over and over and over again. You don't need to fight the production. The production will fight itself. You have fences for those days where, where, where you're weak, and um, weeks maybe where you're weak, where you're struggling, where you've walked outside of the way that you should go and, until you find repentance. There are fences in place for those things. There are fences in place for our children who do not know how yet to be completely guided by the Spirit, to, who, who are not yet in a place where they are producing the Spirit. There are fences for young believers because young believers have not yet understood all the nature of how to walk in the Spirit and how to allow the Spirit of God to empower them in this way. So we put up fences for those reasons and those fences are fine and those fences are good, but they are not the power. And the, the, the realities of the flesh will continue to be strong in you perpetually as long as you submit to the flesh. Once you submit to the Spirit, new things began to begin to be produced in you. And that the production of those things is these virtues of righteousness. If I walk in the power of the flesh, expect it. You will long for sin. You will desire sin. You will think on sin. You will act on those things when your self-discipline fails you. And to whatever degree your discipline fails, you will act on those things. But even if you discipline your body, the battle will be fierce and it will be constant and it will be discouraging and it will be confusing and it will be exhausting because the power that is driving your thinking is the old man. You're going to keep fighting and fighting and fighting, but they're never, it's, it's going to just keep on coming as long as you're submitting to the old man, the old way of thinking, the old nature, the old compulsions. If, however, you walk in the spirit, spiritual things will begin to be produced. You will begin to long for righteousness. You will begin to love righteousness. You will begin to desire righteousness. You will begin to think on the things that are conducive to righteousness. And to whatever degree you are obedient, you will act on righteousness. This is where the battle truly lies, Christian, over your flesh. And this is where you want to be fighting this battle over your flesh. 
And this message, as I said, is, is going to be in two parts. I'm only giving you the first part today. And that for two reasons. The first of these being practical, there's just simply too much here for, for one message. But second, because I found, especially in modern Christianity, that for For man to be able to get to the point where you're going to submit yourself to the Spirit of God, the first thing that really I need to convince Christians from the Word of God, what I have found as a general rule, is the first thing I have to convince Christians is that victory is, is that there is some power beyond just themselves. We all know it. But to convince Christians that self-discipline and control of environment is simply not enough. And so the rest of our time today is going to be spent in this general way, helping us understand that, it is, that, that, that victory is there, that victory is possible, showing you from the Bible that it is possible to live in the state that I've talked about, this place where I'm submitting to the Spirit and what is being produced in me is spiritual, so that I begin to long for spiritual things and my craving for the flesh actually subsides. And then there's a whole new battle, by the way. What the church has always said is only a product of the flesh and things that I'm still able to do without a fit of conscience, though I'm not craving the things of the, of the flesh, and yet I can do this in liberty. But the church says I shouldn't be, or so-and-so says I shouldn't be, and that's a whole nother battle for a whole nother day. And then next time we're going to understand what this submission looks like, what it means to walk in the Spirit, what it means to abide in Christ, because we get into a bit of a chicken and an egg problem when it comes to these things. Call to walk in the Spirit. Say, okay, pastor, so I, I, to obey, I need to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit, I need to submit to Christ. To submit to Christ, I need to obey Him. Now we've got a chicken and an egg problem. If I have to submit to Christ to obey, but I have to obey to submit to Christ, what do I do about that? That's what we're gonna talk about next time. We'll talk through what that looks like. Today, my goal is simply this to show you from the Word of God that what the Bible teaches is that this victory over the flesh, not just maintenance, not just avoidance, not just self-discipline, but victory is possible. Do you actually believe this to be true? Maybe you've been struggling for decades with some temptation of the flesh, and you've tried everything in your power to overcome. You've tried all the good things at your disposal. You've read your Bible. You've prayed. You've tried accountability. You've put up fences. You've done as much as you can do to avoid the temptations. But there's that one day where you're tired or you're distracted or you're lured and you fall back into an old choice. You fall back into an old sin. And maybe it's a one-time thing. Or maybe it is that this kicks you back into the trend and you just, you're back in it. You're back there again. And then, and then you're really discouraged because you climb this huge mountain and you got what you felt like potentially near the top of it and then you fell back and now you have to climb it all over again and that's exhausting to think about and that's frustrating and that's confusing and that's discouraging because now you have to start at the bottom and climb your way back out again all that self-discipline again all those fences again all of that accountability again all of these things again and you're having to climb this battle this mountain again and again and again and you're back in failure. And this idea can work in your mind a belief 
that maybe this is just how it's supposed to be. Maybe there's nothing else for you but this. Maybe this is just the Christian life. Maybe my desires will always be there and the best I can do is simply white knuckle my way through this life. Good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks, but always craving, always wanting, always wondering when the next failure will come. Always thinking that it's going to be, it could be the next day. Always uh, got to stay on my toes, got to keep the self-discipline, got to keep all of these things in place or else it's just going to fall apart. And you know, I've been there. So frustrated with my own struggles against sin and my own lack of self-discipline at times that I wonder if this is just the way it has to be, if this is just the way I'm wired. But then I read my New Testament and see that's the problem is then I read my New Testament and I see something so different. I do not see the picture of a man whose life of obedience and righteousness is like walking a tightrope over a raging river of sinful choices where if I flinch one way or another along this life of righteousness, I'm going to plunge into the river. That's not what I read when I read my New Testament. Times of, of, of victory in an inevitable struggle against my circumstances, which have been chosen for me. I instead see a picture of a man whose life of obedience and righteousness is the norm with periods of, 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 of times of stumbling and of trial and of tribulation and of temptation and those things are yet there and they are still frustrating and there is still a struggle against the flesh and I'm not saying it's not there. I'm not saying that, that, that it's easy. I'm not saying that it's roses. I'm not saying that you wake up every day and float through life without having to guard yourself, guard your eyes, guard your pride. Guard. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is there is a trend toward victory. There is a trend in my heart, a desire for the things of the Lord not just a constant beating back of the hounds of the desires of sin and of flesh. And the first hurdle that we must get over is this hurdle of faith. As we talked about last week, are you willing to submit to the claims of the scripture that victory over the flesh is not just possible in the Christian life, but is for you, is expected, can be the norm and of course, as with everything in the Christian life, if you aren't willing to believe that this victory is yours, then by God's design, there's no way he can give it to you because faith always comes before blessing. So we've seen God's design from Galatians 5. I want to take you, I've mentioned it already, to John 15 next. We'll pick up in John 15 next week as well. But in verses 1 through 11 of John 15, Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing." If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you 
and that your joy might be full. So Jesus has ordained a system. And he says, as we align with this system, we become his disciples. And being a disciple of Christ is the call of the Christian life. And this system is what? That we bear fruit. What fruit? Well, the fruit that comes from submission. Nicely defined by Paul in Galatians 5, as we've talked about it already. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Jesus has ordained a system for you to have his joy remain in you so that your joy may be full. Jesus wants this for you. Jesus has ordained this for you. Jesus desires this for you. And if your life is not defined by trending joy, not necessarily fullness of joy, that takes time, but trending joy, progress in your sanctification, and instead is trending failure, trending frustration, then there's something that, then there's an element of abiding that you are missing. Because if we abide in him, then this is the place that it takes us. Again, next week we'll consider more about how to get there, so hang on for that. This week is simply the question. I'm trying to prove to you from the New Testament that this is true, that this is possible. Is victory possible? Can you say in genuineness, yes, victory in my life is possible. Victory over the the, the, the lust of the flesh, victory over the compulsions of the flesh, victory over these urges is possible. The same author, John the Apostle, who wrote the, epistle, uh, the Gospel of John, also writ the, wrote the epistles of John. In the first of these epistle, epistles, John makes some very startling claims. In 1 John 2, verses 28 and 29, he says this, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Those who abide in Christ will not be ashamed at Christ's coming. Why? Because they are abiding in the righteous one. And if they're abiding in the righteous one, then they will do righteousness, right? That is implicit. They will do righteousness because they are abiding in the righteous one because they are bearing the fruit of being connected to the true vine. And this gives them confidence. It assures their heart before God that they are abiding in the righteous one because they are bearing righteousness. And this is the confidence that we have at his coming, that we are in the righteous one and we know that because we do righteousness. And we do righteousness when we are in the righteous one. Not that we are in Christ unto salvation, but when we are abiding in him. That's what he says here, abide in him. When we are abiding in him, righteousness will inevitably flow from you. And when you see that, you have confidence that you are connected because you're seeing the fruit. And that gives you confidence before God at his coming. Even more clear what John says in 1 John 3, verses 5 through 9. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Very, very strong statement. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's why Christ came. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 
Jesus came to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. The man who is abiding in Jesus is not sinning. You cannot both be sinning and abiding in Jesus at the same time. This has nothing to do with whether or not you're saved. I'm not talking about salvation. This, this is not talking about salvation. This is not talking about who goes to heaven and who does not. Take that out of your mind. That's not what 1 John is talking about. From the very beginning, this is not what 1 John is talking about. 1 John is not talking to people about whether or not they are believers. They are talking, is talking about how to live in fullness of joy, how to live life more abundantly, how to walk and abide in Christ. When you are abiding in Christ, you are walking in the Spirit. When you are walking in the new man, created in holiness and righteousness, that new man does not sin. That new man cannot sin. He is created, the Bible says this, Ephesians 4 says this, that the new man is created in holiness and righteousness. That new man does not sin. Anytime you are living in that new man, you are not sinning. Anytime you are sinning, it is because you are living in the old man. You are living under the power of the old man. You are empowering the old man. The new man cannot sin because he's born of God. It stands to reckon then, if I spend my days living in the new man, which is abiding in Christ, which is walking in the spirit, submitting to the spirit of God, if I learn submission to the spirit, then I will not sin. Again, we'll talk next week about what this looks like. Just stick with me on the, the theoretical this week. Do you believe that this is true? No man will live without sin. You will not live without sin. I will not live without sin because we are human. And because we are human, we are not going to consistently live in, in Christ, abide in Christ, walk in the Spirit because we have bad days and we get frustrated and we get selfish and we get distracted and um, we get angry and uh, we have unexpected events that come up in our lives that throw us for a loop. Uh, maybe that's grief. Maybe that's fear. Maybe that's uh, a, terrible, uh, a terrible tragedy. Whatever it might be, things come up and it causes and, and, and it derails us and this, is, this happens. But do you believe that you could live without sin if you did perpetually walk in the Spirit? Do you believe that anytime you are, you are not living sinlessly, it's because you have stepped outside of a provision that is fully made for you in Christ? Or do you say, no, pastor, that's not how the Christian life works? That's, that's not it. We, we live in this, this flesh and we will sin and sin is a part of the Christian life and it's just the way it is. If you don't believe that you could live without sin if you lived perpetually in the Spirit, how do you explain these verses? How do you explain John 15? How do you explain Galatians 5.16? How do you explain 1 John 2 and 1 John 3? Now again, we're talking about a theoretical level, but that's okay. The Bible preaches up. If you don't believe these things, then let's make a priority first to learn how to do this. Because until you have the faith that says, no, 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 I can walk in the Spirit through submission to God, and as I submit to God and I walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I can live in that place where I am not sinning every moment that I'm walking in, in the Spirit. And that is the solution to the problem of the flesh. If you're not there, 
That's where you need to get first. You will never be able to find victory over the flesh if you do not believe that you can have that victory through the Spirit. If you believe that only self-discipline, only environmental control factors, or if you believe that it is simply not possible, you've been deceived. You've been deceived by Satan and by the society that is around you. Because we live in a godless society that is intent on the idea that everything now is inherent. It's the nature versus nurture battle. And because the society that we live in does not regard a new nature, they only look at the old nature. They say, okay, well then, your nature plus your nurture is going to define you. But what if you could have a new nature? What if old things could be passed away and all things could be made new? What if there is a nature inside of you, the new man, that is created in righteousness and holiness? What if that old nature was a non-factor to the way you live your life when you are living in the spirit? That would change everything, wouldn't it? No man will live without sin because we are so human, but do you believe that you could? And when we live outside of that, as John says here, we are listening to the lies of the devil. We are of the devil. Doesn't mean we're going to hell. Doesn't mean we're, we're not saved. It means that we are walking in the lies of the devil who, had, who sinneth from the beginning. And Jesus was manifested specifically for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil. So if you're living in them, you're not living out the fullness of what Jesus Christ came to give you. You're not tapping into the fullness of his power. Jesus did not come to take you to heaven after a life of miserable frustration against the nature that lives inside of you. Jesus came to take you to heaven after you finish your course where following your faith in Christ Jesus, you walked in newness of life with victory over the works of the devil as he had over the works of the devil. Now, I'm not preaching sinless perfection in this life. Please don't get me wrong. Because we're human. But the lack of sinless perfection that you and I live is not because God has not made provision. Because he has. It's because of our choices. Do you believe this? And if you do, you will find several things to be true in your application, in our application this morning. If victory over the flesh can be mine in Christ, then first, my temptations and weaknesses don't have to control my choices. If you have the Spirit of God inside of you, then Romans chapter 8, verses 11 and 12 tells you this. If the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, make alive, your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. You are not a debtor to live after the flesh. If you feel bound, if you feel controlled, if you feel powerless, that is not Christ. It is not, you are not bound. If you are in Christ, you are not bound. You are not a debtor to your flesh. You're not to live after the flesh because you have the spirit of the living God, the one who raised up Jesus from the dead inside of you. Your weaknesses, your temptations, your tendencies, your struggles, they are very real and I'm not trying to minimize them at all. I have them too. 
they're not going to magically disappear either. Don't think I'm saying that. They are a part of the old man, and that old man will be with you until the day you die. But that old man only has power over you to the extent that you give it power over you. And you will, because you're human, and growth and maturity and submission and obedience will take time to have an effect in your life. These feet of clay means there will always be struggle, but failure is not inevitable, Christian. And growth ought to be perpetual because the provision is there for you. If I may say it this way, your tendencies do not have to be your inevitabilities. Your tendencies in the old man do not have to be your inevitabilities. How many Christians live in discouragement? How many Christians live in failure? Because you've been trying all of this self-discipline and you've been trying to control your environment and you've been trying all of these things, but what you have not done is you have not submitted. You refuse to give up. You will try everything in your power to succeed, but what you won't do is submit to God's power. A lot of times this is a pride thing. It's a self thing. You've got a lot of things that you're willing to give up, but you're not willing to give up control. And other times, it's, a, it's, it's maybe a selfishness thing or it's a particular sin that you say, no, I'm just not giving, I'm not giving that up. I'm not giving that up to have the power of the Spirit of God. This is mine and God can't work with you. Sometimes it's a faith thing that you simply do not believe that you can have that victory and because you don't believe it, God cannot bless that. You have not submitted yourself to the promises of God by faith. Therefore, God cannot give you the victory. Whatever it might be in your life, there's something between you. There's something hindering you if you're not experiencing this. Some of you under this, uh, uh, point number two, excuse me. If victory over the flesh can be mine in Christ, number one, my temptations and weaknesses don't have to control, don't have control over my choices. Number two, my experiences don't have control over my actions. This is a second important point. This is, again, the nature versus nurture thing. Some of you under the sound of my voice really want to believe that victory over the flesh is possible and all things being equal, if your struggles were just over your sinful tendencies, you might even believe that victory over the flesh was possible. But you have a whole other realm of struggles that you deal with. The realm of things that have happened to you that you have had no control over, that are not about you things you've experienced, that adult that was abused as a child, that wife who was or is mistreated, the soldier who has gone overseas and who has fought and seen and done things on the battlefield which you and I cannot even understand or relate to. And you carry wounds. And you struggle because you carry wounds. So you struggle to trust. You struggle to be calm. You struggle with anxiety. You struggle with fear. And when these things well up inside of you, you immediately gear up to to fight, even, even uh, even against those whom you love. Or you immediately run and hide, even from those who want to help you. And this is not uncommon. And you're not alone in this. So that... You desperately want this victory and you want to believe it's true, but it's like every time victory almost feels like you can taste it, you run away. 
because you're afraid of the implications of giving control. Or you start to distance yourself from those that want to help you. Or you start fighting. You get angry against those that want to help you because you've never known anyone that you can trust. Because you're afraid of what might happen if you take that next step. That's not uncommon. And I'm not trying to marginalize it at all. And you say, Pastor, I know that Jesus can give some normal person victory over the flesh. It's easy enough for you to say, you don't have all this baggage, all of these wounds. You don't have all of these things. But not me. I'm a product of my experiences, and my experiences have broken me. So your, your ceiling might be here, but the fact of the matter is, Pastor, my ceiling's right here. This is all I've got. My ceiling is just so much lower than yours. And so if I can reach my perceived ceiling, then that's the best I can do. My fear is inevitable. My anxiety is inevitable. My emotional distance is inevitable. My anger is inevitable. And to you, I respond with all the love I can muster. That is not true. I know you feel it's true. having counseled soldiers with PTSD, after six and a half years of jail ministry, having helped young ladies with terrible past experiences, things which they never asked for, things which they never wanted, but which are realities in their lives, I completely understand that you think it is true. And it makes sense to me that you think it is true, but it isn't true. And this is a faith battle that you have to fight and you must win if you are going to find victory. Victory over the flesh is yours as well if you are in Christ. Healing is yours. Restoration is yours. Submission to these truths may be more difficult for you, and I understand that. But it must begin with you having the faith in the Word of God that it's possible. Do you have the faith to trust the Word of God on this thing? That when the New Testament speaks of victory, it does not qualify that victory by saying it only applies to those who have not had broken lives. As a matter of fact, if one of the earliest activities of Jesus' earthly ministry is true, the exact opposite is the case. Jesus just begins his ministry, the marriage of Cana. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes into Nazareth, the place where he grew up. And he is now a grown man and he is a teacher. He has been baptized. He did the marriage of Cana. His ministry has started. And now he steps into Nazareth. And the Bible says this, beginning in verse 16 of Luke 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. That would be Isaiah. And when he had opened this book, the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath appointed, anointed me, excuse me, to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and to recover and, the, and recovering of the sight, uh, sorry again, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. 
And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Was Jesus correct when he read from Isaiah 61 and said that he was the fulfillment of that prophetic utterance? That that day was the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophetic utterance. And if Jesus was correct, if what he if he is who he says he is, if what he said is what he did, then he came specifically to heal the brokenhearted. He came specifically to deliver the captives. He came specifically to recover the sight of the blind. And he came specifically to set at liberty those who had been bruised. That word meaning crushed or beaten. He came to heal you. And for you to insist that you cannot be healed because of your past experiences is to insist upon something that is in direct contradiction to what Jesus Christ said he came to do and what he said he can do. If Jesus is telling the truth here, your past experiences have no control over your current actions except the control that you give them. If Jesus is true here, the past experiences do not define your behaviors except to the extent that you allow them to define your behaviors. You can be set free. Your temptations and your weaknesses don't have to have control over your choices. Your experiences don't have to have control over your actions. Next week, we'll talk about the how, but for this week, let me just ask you the singular question. Do you believe this? If not, that's where you've got to start. You've got to start with aligning your heart by faith in what Christ has taught. And then God is free to begin to work in you the reality of these things. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray for God's people and I ask that you would help them, help us to understand this concept. Thank you that Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. Thank you that Jesus came to preach deliverance to the captives and the covering of the sight of the blind set at liberty them that are bruised. For this morning, my simple request of you is this, that your spirit would work in the hearts of each man and woman to bring about a absolute confidence in the possibility of victory through the Spirit of God. That we would all know and have confidence that when we are walking in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that that Spirit is in us if we have the new nature by means of salvation by grace through faith. I pray that you would recover the minds of any in this room who have been subverted by a culture that wants to convince us that we are so the product of our environment, so the product of our experiences, so the product of our, our inborn old nature that we cannot help but be overcome. And instead, Father, help us to walk by faith into this place of blessed victory according to your good pleasure. May we live it. May we believe it. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.